So last time I was up here, I talked about how we were going to take a look at a very, very, very cool and radical view of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. And today, actually, I'm going to start by giving just a little bit context of who Jesus was. I mean, bless you. And most of you guys in here, you know who Jesus is. And if you don't, you could probably take a wild guess at this point that he's Messiah. But it goes a little deeper than just Messiah. So Jesus, I mean, first off, let me ask the question. Who here believes that Jesus said he was God? Yep, said it. A lot of people like to say he never actually said he was God. You're not sure, though, huh? No, because he had God's story on Jesus' son. I don't know. I'm not sure. So, who said, who, okay, let's take a poll. Who says he didn't say that? He never said he was God. Anyone? Anyone? Come on. You're not sure? Okay, fine. If you're not sure. Come on. Tell me the truth. Okay, there we go. All right. That means everybody else thinks he said it. Huh? So, Jesus at one point, when he's talking to the Pharisees, says that before Abraham was, I am. He uses the words I am, which is the same words that God used in the burning bush to talk to Abraham. Or Moses, sorry. To Moses. And Jesus uses the exact same word. Well, right after he says that, the Pharisees bent down to pick up stones to kill him. Because he just blasphemed in their eyes. Well, then later on... Jesus then says, as you stated, I and the Father are one. He right there says he is God. When he said, you know, before Abraham was, I am, he said he was God. So Jesus here, like, this is blatant, blatant, I and the Father are one. Like, there's no separating the two. Jesus is God on the earth. So, that's what I, I want to give context that Jesus is God. And even though you may not fully believe that right now, it's hard to get around it when Jesus exclaims it. And then you have the different disciples, apostles, you know, they were all willing to die for the name of Jesus. I was told it was like a trifecta the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all one. Yes. Yes, there is the Trinity, but you have one God, multiple persons, but they have unity as one. So, you know, God, God came down in the form of Jesus, who was already part of the Godhead, which is the Trinity. Like we talked about in Genesis, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Spirit, all there present at creation. He says on the Alpha the Omega, the beginning and the end. So, so then, then when I jump over to Colossians, Paul gives this amazing view of Jesus and who he is. And this gives us even more context. And then we're really going to move over to where we want to be. So it ties into this whole end times thing. So in Colossians 1, starting at verse 15... I hear pages turning. I'm going to go ahead and start reading it. That way I don't go over. Well, 
1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean he's created. It just means he's the first one to be resurrected unto eternal life. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or all, thi all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is God. Right? The Bible makes that extremely clear. Jesus is God and he should be should be honored and worshipped and glorified as such. And that's why we can trust in him and have our faith in him because he's God. God knew he was the only one who could take care of the problem of sin. And so when we jump over to Revelation to tie this together in end times, this is why Jesus, because of those credentials of being God, this is why Jesus is the prominent figure in Revelation. Right in the very beginning of Revelation, you have John on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there because of his testimony about Jesus and spreading the gospel and starting churches. They hated him. So he was exiled on a mining uh, island. Like they mined. They, it was like a coal mine almost, you know. They had him on a chain gang, you know, digging up, digging up rock and breaking rock. And, you know, and he's in his 90s, like this old dude swinging in a pick, you know, on a sledgehammer. You know, but one day he's in this cave that he got to stay in. And behind him, he hears this loud voice, this voice just kind of like like a trumpet almost like so loud. And in Revelation chapter one, starting at verse 12, John says this, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair on his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as is fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came <coughs> from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you see. Like, how radical is that? I mean, we get a small picture 
of Jesus. I mean, if you think back to the Mount of Transfiguration, that's not even his full glory right there. When Jesus comes in full glory, I mean, come on, you, you're, it's noticeable from as far as the east is from the west. It's noticeable. That's how bright Jesus is. Okay? In the new heaven and the new earth, it says that we don't need a sun or a moon because the brilliance of God and Jesus is the light. We don't need a sun to remind us that there is a greater light out there. Because that's what the sun is there for. It reminds us that there is a God governing over us. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, right? Makes sense. You know, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to reflect the light of Jesus. You know, so seeing that Jesus is this being just surrounded in light, but then he's also got these other qualities. You know, the double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Why? Because he is the word of God. He speaks truth into everything. And then all these other aspects are different ways that show power, that show his might and his strength and the things that he is able to do, like his bringing justice, his bringing wrath, his bringing mercy. You know, he's described a little bit further when you go into the point of where he's going to almost open the scrolls you know, they go back and they, they picture him as the slaughtered lamb, right? Because that's what he came and he did. He was the lamb. He was the one who was sacrificed and slaughtered for our sins. And then, then we come to his return in Revelation chapter 19. And this is, this is where it gets really crazy. This is where it gets really radical, and this is going to put a whole new light of Jesus, I believe, in your minds. Because this is Jesus as he is right now. Same with what we just read. This is Jesus as he is right now. So in Revelation chapter 19, at verse 11, you probably have a title somewhere similar to the rider on the white horse. There's two white horses in Revelation. One is Antichrist and one is Christ. Okay. This one, this is the return of Jesus. This is him returning. We get to see and know what it's going to be like. And so let me go ahead and read this. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with, ju <clears throat> with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame. So, again, pointing back to what we already read. He had many crowns on his head. Now, crowns here is a different word in the original because there's two different types of crowns. There is Stephanos and Diadema. Stephanos is like what you get when you won like an Olympic game, which was more of a wreath than it was a crown. A Diadema, that was like a kingly crown. Like this thing has diamonds just all over it. It's huge. And so it indicates that this is the king of kings. We're on his head. He had the name written on him that no one knows except himself. That's going to be interesting to, if, he'll, if he'll tell us later on. He wore a robe dipped in blood and 
His name is called the Word of God. Isn't that the same way that John explained who he was in the beginning? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? That's John 1.1. 1, 1. There, <clears throat> the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth. So, again, the word of God. A sharp sword, able to cut to bone and marrow. Saying that Jesus' words are powerful and they are going to cut deep. So that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. Jesus has a tattoo. <laughs> it's probably not the same type of tattoo that we have, but he's got a tattoo. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not the sickly, frail Jesus you see in Catholic churches. I'm not trying to be mean to Catholics. However, Jesus is no longer on the cross. Please take him off. Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now, waiting for this day. This is not the Jesus anybody wants to see if you're not following him. This is the Jesus I am waiting for. This is the Jesus I want that I serve. This is the reason I will gladly bow my knee to him. I will gladly lay on my face as though dead and allow him to pick me back up. Okay, when John fell on his face as though he was dead, I firmly believe, and I can't prove this, but I firmly believe he actually died because most people who saw God, they either knew they were about to die or they died. Because the unrighteous cannot behold God. Because sin cannot be in his presence. You know, so when Jesus returns, I mean, this is crazy. This is why people want the rocks to fall on them, the mountains to, to crush them. This is why they want to hide. This Jesus is awesome. And this is the way we need to view Jesus. And think about it. If we have the right view of Jesus, we'll serve him in different ways. We'll serve him wholeheartedly because we know that this dude can literally Thanos me in un, under a millisecond. You know, he can make me disappear without even trying. Because all he has to do is speak it and I would be eviscerated. You know, it's, there's other places in the Bible that describes some of the things that are happening in Revelation. And at one point, it describes that there is such an intense heat from something coming out of the sky that it literally melts people's tongues, out of, uh, tongues and eyes out of their skulls. That's how hot it is. Now, you're either talking neutron bomb or the return of Jesus. I mean, Jesus, when he returns, he is not returning as this, you know, oh, peace be with you kind of guy. 
He is bringing the wrath of God on the unjust and unrighteous. And this is why we have a job to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection so that people don't have to be afraid of this Jesus. Otherwise, people have very good cause to be fearful. See, when it says for us to fear God, or the fear of the Lord, you know, is wisdom, or wisdom is the beginning of the fear of the Lord, we're supposed to fear God. Because God is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Like, annihilationism is not preached in the Bible, is not taught in the Bible. However, if God chose to annihilate your soul, he absolutely could. But he'd probably be doing you a favor. We are beholden to Jesus for what he did, for what he paid for. He paid for us. He paid the penalty. He took on the wrath of God for our sins. And yet we want to live like he never did it. We don't want to live in view of this Jesus because we want the happy-go-lucky Jesus who gives us everything we want. That's not Jesus. Jesus wants good things for us. But he told us we're going to suffer. He told us we're going to have troubles. He told us we're going to go through the tribulation. He told us that when he comes back, people are going to be freaked out. And many people are going to try to deceive us. But he wants us to see him in the right view of the almighty and powerful God. This is radical to think of Jesus this way. Most people do not want to think of Jesus this way at all because it's scary. That's why most churches will never preach on the book of Revelation because it's scary and it's hard. They don't want people to be scared of Jesus, but to be honest, I want to be scared of Jesus, but I want it to be a reverent fear because that's what the fear of the Lord is supposed to be, reverent fear, knowing that I serve a thrice holy God that was willing to step out of eternity into human history, live perfectly, and take on the price that needed to be paid for sin. I serve a radical Jesus who's ready to return at the very word of God and exact judgment and punishment on all those who are unrighteous and unrepentant. And that's why we should be out there doing what we need to do by proclaiming the gospel and living faithfully for him. This is the Jesus we want to live for. We have something far greater than any other faith system religion out there. We actually have a savior who's already taken care of the problem for us. We only need to be faithful to him and endure in our faith. Through this time of judgment and wrath, we'll be the ones standing 
out on the corners, out on out wherever we can, proclaiming the gospel. And if you're not, you're probably one of those who were a coward and took the mark of the beast, and you will not see eternal life. Jesus wants us to honor him and glorify him because he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we get to. Because he did something we cannot repay, that we did not deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve to be separated from the holy God. Our holy God, the only God. This should cause us to live so differently. But some of us are going to walk out of the room today and completely drop it from our minds. And I know that because I've done that. I'm going to tell you that I've read this so many times, but yet I will constantly live opposite of the service that I owe to this person. I don't owe him to get something. I owe him because he gave me something amazing. I get to serve Jesus. I get to serve God. And I get to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is God. I get to be sealed by him for the day of redemption, Jesus' return. You guys realize when this Jesus appears, this is also when the believers get caught up to meet him in the air? Not only are we going to see this, we get to meet this Jesus. We get to meet him in the air and come down with him and begin to rule and reign on the earth for the thousand years. You know, Jesus is going to bring judgment down. And I want to be on the right end of that. I want you guys to be on the right end of that. I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to put the truth in front of you. Jesus is God. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the one who is, was, and is to come. And at this point, you can drop off the is to come part because he's already come. Let's have that right view of Jesus so that we'll serve him the way that he is, is that he's earned. That he deserves. He deserves to be honored and glorified in every aspect of our lives. And this is what I pray for each and every one of us, that we will live that way. Live in a way for us so that we will honor him, that we will glorify him, and that we will do what he has called us to do, and that is to go out and proclaim the gospel and live righteously in his name by faith. And if somebody says, I'm going to kill you for what you believe, tell them, thank you. Tell them, thank you. Because to be separate from the body is to be with the Lord. They're just doing you a favor by getting you there quicker. And you'll still get to see this, Jesus, because your body will resurrect 
and you will be transformed as you are going to meet him. It's going to be epic, and I can't wait. I mean, tell me, it sounds pretty epic, right? I mean, how many of you have ever read this or ever thought of Jesus in this way? I mean, this is scary, but at the same time, we recognize that it's powerful and that it's beautiful and that it's ridiculously awesome. And we are undeserving of seeing this, this man. And it should cause us to want to worship him. It should cause us to live differently. Because we are different. Believers are different. So just keep, keep this in your mind. You don't serve some myth. You don't serve some fake Messiah. You serve the Lord God Almighty, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Messiah, Savior, Lion of the tribe of Judah, the slaughtered lamb. You serve the Lord. And if you don't yet, I encourage you, I encourage you to start moving that way. Jesus wants you. He wants you. Right? He wants you. He wants you to be part of the army that's returning with him. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's funny, but it's also true. He wants you. His arms are open. He is ready to receive you. He's ready to impart his righteousness onto you. He is ready to write your name into the book of life. You know, and that's, that's awesome. Jesus is ready for you. And yeah, he says, come as you are. You know, just like the disciples. He didn't say, get fixed and then follow me. He said, follow me. They dropped everything and followed him. This is what we are supposed to do. So we can live radically for Jesus because he is radical. He's beautiful and radical and absolutely amazing. I think if I keep going, I'm going to just keep repeating myself in different ways. So just keep this in your minds, guys. If you're not following Jesus right now, I'm encouraging you to give your life to him. Take on his righteousness. Take on what he's done for you. And begin living for him, letting the Spirit do his work in and through you. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this awesome, awesome description of you and your return, Lord, to know that you are God, that you are God in the flesh, that you are God come down into human history to do something that none of us could do to pay the penalty for sin. Or none of us could do that. None of us are perfect. None of us are even good, as your word says. Lord, I pray that we would continually have the right view of you. Lord, not so that we can follow you out of fear, but out of 
reverence for you, Lord, so we can be grateful for what you did, so that we can, when we see you coming, Lord, we cannot be fearful, but we can praise you. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who does not follow you now, Lord, that they would come to follow you, that they would place their life in you, Lord, that they would take on the righteousness that you provide through your blood, Lord, that you would wash them clean, Lord, and that you would begin to start showing them the sin that is in their life that they need to turn from. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, Lord, we got sins in our lives that we need to be brought to light and we need to turn from. So Lord, would you do that? As David said, Lord, wash us clean and create in me a new heart. So Lord, we praise you. We give you the rest of this evening. Lord, we just praise you in your name. Amen.